Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of the Darko Audio Podcast. With me this time out isn't Michael Lavornia. It's one Stephen Entwistle, who is the Chief Engineer of Acoustics at Dynaudio. Welcome, Stephen. Thanks for having me. Now, Stephen, today we're going to talk about, well, one model in your new range of three streaming active loudspeakers called the Focus Series, right? Yep. And you very kindly sent me a pair of Focus 30, so it's the middle of the range, it's the small floor stander. Um, am I correct in saying that this is a two and a half way? It is indeed, yes. Could you explain to people who might not know what that means, what two and a half way means? Yeah, it, it, it's actually, um, it seems to be a, a common misconception about how uh, these kind of format loudspeakers are. So I've seen some people call them three ways and some people call them two ways. And uh, it, it's a bit of a hot, not a hot topic, but a bit of a misunderstanding in there. So um, what we have uh, chosen to do in the Focus 30 is make it a two and a half way. Mm. So what that means is the uh, the two woofers uh, or mid woofers, they share the same volume. Mm -hmm. um, and at low frequency, they are moving the same. So they have the same uh, signal going to both woofers in the low frequency. Mm -hmm. And then the lower woofer, in, in our case, is rolled off. So it has a low pass filter. Mm -hmm. around about 150 120 hertz mm. uh, and from that point on the lower woofer isn't really doing very much and most of the energy is coming from the upper woofer and then it's the upper woofer that's crossed over into the tweeter so the reason it's a two and a half way is because there isn't actually a crossover between all three drivers there's only a low-pass filter that's applied to the lower woofer. It's not actually crossed over into the upper woofer. So is it fair to say that the bottom woofer just does bass and the upper woofer does bass and mid-range? Exactly. Right, and then obviously we've got the tweeter as well. So you develop and design and manufacture all of your drivers in-house, right? Yes. What can you tell us about the drivers that are inside the Focus 30? Basically, we've we've been using a, a material called MSP, mm -hmm. um, so that's magnesium silicate polymer. So it's it's a it's a polypropylene with some extra additives that that we think make the mid range performance um, more uh, acceptable. Mm -hmm. We get a good mid range performance from that material. We've been using it a very very long time now. Mm. Um, they are a ceramic magnet. And they are um, six ohm voice coils. And what we've done is we've optimized the um, the voice coil to work well with the amplifier that we use in the product. Mm -hmm. um, and because it's an active product, it, it's um, a compromise between power and uh, BL. So BL is the force factor that uh, basically moves uh, the the driver. Mm -hmm. And in an active system, it's a bit more of a, a balancing act to play, leaning more towards BL. But mm -hmm. the problem is to, to get an easy way to get BL is to put more coils uh, of wire in, in, the, in the gap. But when you do that, you tend to have a higher DC resistance mm -hmm. and then you lose power. So it's this balance between making sure you get enough power out of the amplifier so it's, you're using it efficiently and having enough BL so that you have enough control in the active speaker. 
I see. And so you're using, if I'm, if I've got this correct, you're using Pascal class DMs in in these speakers, right? Yes. Now they're they're from are they from just down the road from you somewhere in Denmark? Yes, they're they're about three hours away actually, but uh, they're based in Copenhagen. Okay. Um, and we're in in Jutland in Skanderborg. Okay, and so those amplifiers, do you have one per driver? So one for the each of the uh, the woofers, then one for the tweeter, or is it different? Yes. Um, so what we what we use is their uh, one of their modules which has a, a power supply and then a 280 watt amplifier and a 110 watt amplifier on board, all on one board. Hmm. And then we have an additional hanger on amplifier of another 280 watts. Um, so we have the two, two times 280 watts for the, the woofer and the mid woofer, and then the 110 for the tweeter. I think it's important to point out to listeners at this stage that you've got all of this in in both speakers, right? This is not a sort of primary, secondary type configuration where there's a, an interlink cable, right? This, it's drivers and amplifiers and all the electronics in. Well, apart, we'll get to the streaming in a bit. I know it's different for the streaming, but yeah. But basically, drivers and amps, and I would assume DACs in each loudspeaker. Yes, but basically, apart from the uh, the streaming and uh, the input. State the, the input stage, the primary and the client speaker are the same. It's the same motherboard. It's the same amplifiers. It's the same DACs. On the primary speaker, you get a streaming module and the analog input mm. and a subwoofer output. So that, that's, the di- that's the only difference is the input stage on, on both speakers. Right. So you've obviously got the amplifiers and therefore the drivers stitched together in the digital domain using DSP as the crossover, right? Yes. Is, I mean, you'll forgive me for not knowing this, Stephen, but <laughs> is this relatively new territory for Dynaudio or have you been doing this for years because you've been doing it in the, in the pro speakers that you make? Yeah, we've, we've, we've been doing it a very long time. Um, mm. And I think we were one of the first uh, companies to really take uh, digital uh, DSP crossovers into the hi-fi market very, mm. very early on with... Uh, um, like our Zio products, hmm. and oof, how long ago now is this? Four, five years ago, we refreshed the Focus XD range, mm-hmm. uh, and I was involved in rethinking the the DSP and and how the whole audio flow within the product was was handled and managed. And then this this new Focus is the new successor to the the Focus XD, so it's kind of our current flagship range for our active hi-fi speakers right so this but these are mainly targeted i know you have two different divisions right so you have a sort of studio pro division and then the sort of home hi-fi division which i understand why it exists i still think it's crazy but okay Um, not not that you do it but that that the the sort of this divide seems to exist but yeah yeah i mean um we, we actually have kind of three divisions i guess um because we also have an automotive division and my role um, as the chief engineer is nothing to do with automotive. That's that's a completely different uh, part of the organization, um, mm. mainly because of the security levels that we have to comply with with all our automotive partners. And my role is to look after everything else, basically, from the acoustics point of view. So that's like home theater, custom install, pro and hi-fi. Mm. And I guess the, the real separation 
between hi-fi and pro is just the market segments that we're in yeah yeah and they don't they they quite often clash which i always find is a bit strange right um, <laughs> yes definitely but i i kind of sort of i've come to terms with it i think well i'm trying to come to terms with it but <laughs> yeah and and the the difference from from our point of view at dyn audio is that there isn't a real performance difference you know in terms of sound performance and all the dyn audio qualities that, that we always strive to to do better at we're always trying to make our speakers better and better mm. um and what the difference between pro and, and hi-fi generally is is that pro you just get a black box and it's a workhorse mm. um, and we expect it to be on all day every day playing loud all day every day so we we have to engineer in us more robustness mm. for that hard work that they're going to do and in the hi-fi world, they need to have more connectivity, like streaming and so on. They mm. need to be in a nice box. But then we don't need them to be on all day, every day. So if you wanted to compare and contrast, say, our core, which is uses bigger amplifiers and bigger boxes than we do in Focus, but we've got a heat sink on the back of the core. Mm-hmm. And we don't actually need that there but we put it on there to make sure that in the most extreme circumstance, the, the amplifier is always going to be as, as cool as it needs to be. Mm. But when we move into the hi-fi with, with focus, we don't put that heatsink on because they're not going to be playing at 90% maximum volume all day, every day. Um, so right. th- that, those are the kind of main differences between, between the hi-fi world and the pro world. That's interesting. I mean, the other sort of question that comes to mind right now from you know, talking to you, and you'll forgive me, this is a bit of a spicy one, uh-huh. is you know, if you're making streaming active loudspeakers, why do you still make passives? I think while there's a market there, we mm. will always be making those passive speakers. And I, I feel kind of privileged where, where I am because I've kind of grown up in that analog, you know, passive world. Mm. And transitioned into this this digital world, so I kind of stand between the two. And you know, I love active speakers because of what that allows me to do. That uh, in in the DSP and things, uh, it gives us much more freedom and flexibility to do to be creative uh, with with how we design the, the loudspeaker and tune the loudspeaker. Do you have more? But, Sorry, can I just cut in there? Do you have yeah. more? Do you have more tuning flexibility, and I guess also crossover accuracy in the digital domain than you do with using passive components and a passive speaker? Uh, in terms of accuracy, that's uh, yeah, contentious question. <laughs> I told you, um, it was spicy. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, in terms of accuracy, the digital filter will always be the same, mm. um, but. And this is the interesting thing for me. The accuracy of the digital filter depends on the, the bit rate through this filter mm-hmm. and the sample frequency and then the frequency that it is operating at as well. Huh. And in a passive filter, you are subject to the tolerance of the components. So if you specify high tolerance components, then you get more deviation than if you spend, specify a narrow tolerance component. Mm. So you can get just as accurate 
passive filters as, as, as digital filters. And maybe actually, depending on how and where you use your digital filter and what sample rate you run at, uh, you might get more or less error. Mm. But aren't digital filters better with phase accuracy? Um, yeah. Uh, it's a leading we, question. Yeah, I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah. No, no, it's fine. I mean, we choose not, generally we choose not to use um, uh, FIR filters. So FIR mm. filters are called finite impulse response filters. And in a nutshell, they're kind of a lookup table. Uh, mm. it's, it's an easy way to describe them. Mm-hmm. Um, so you can specify magnitude and phase uh, going through the filter. Mm-hmm. Um, and choose whether or not you the phase is adjusted through the filter. The problem with FIR filters is that you get latency going through the filter, and the lower in frequency you go, essentially the bigger the lookup table needs to be, so mm-hmm. the more latency you have going through the FIR filter. The other problem with FIR filters, we believe, is that they all have pre-ring Right. And there's quite a bit of debate about how audible pre-ring is or not. Mm. Um, and we find that it's always audible uh, it, when, we, when we do the experiments in our listening room. Mm-hmm. So we tend not to use FIR filters. We then, of course, use IIR, so infinite impulse response filters, which do not have pre-ring. But the downside is they have phase built into the filter. And that phase is non-negotiable. That's how right. the filters work. Okay. And that's much more like an analog filter or a passive filter. Uh-huh. So we just work with that phase change in the same way you would if it was a passive speaker. Rather so I- than rather than like brute force the phase with an FIR filter. If I'm understanding you correctly. Basically, uh, it seems to me, as with a lot of things in hi-fi, or pretty much everything in hi-fi, you have to choose the least worst compromise. Yes, I mean, that's uh, basically I often describe my job as as a, being a window cleaner. So we <laughs> uh, bear with the metaphor a minute. Um, so every time we put something into the loudspeaker, we're adding a pane of glass to the window. Mm-hmm. And also, you add dirt to the window as well. And my job is to basically look through the window, try and clean every pane of glass as clean as it can be, and also ask, does that pane of glass need to be there? So, you know, instead of having a a quadruple glazed window, maybe we only need a double glazed window. Uh, And that's that's basically what we do all the time in all of our loudspeaker design. Right, I see. So, yeah, okay. So you have have some choices to make because I guess, I mean – one of the frustrations I have with with certain commentary on hi-fi gear is I, you know, they'll you'll see people people say I can't believe this manufacturer did that, mm-hmm. and I'm always thinking, well, it's because they had to make some tough choices. It's always down to, I guess, from the way I understand it, tough choices, right? There is no perfect solution, probably not unless you spend mega money on your bit of materials, which then translates to insane money in the high street. Mm-hmm. So I guess when you're building to any price point, even at, what is it, 6,000 euros for the Focus 30, something like that? Was it 7,000? Yeah. I can't remember now. Um, anyway, several thousand euros, you still mm-hmm. have to hit a, a build price point, right? Even with DSP. 
Yeah, yeah, yes, absolutely. Everything, everything in life is always a compromise, um, mm. and it's the choice of the compromise that you make that makes the difference. And that's the thing that we—that's something that we're very, very conscious with with all our uh, choices when we when we develop the loudspeakers. So, if I may actually introduce a, a, something I perceive to be a compromise or a, a tough decision you made. On the input panel, on the back of the primary loudspeaker, we've got some digital inputs, right? Mm -hmm. And there is coaxial, but there isn't HDMI arc. Now, yep. wh why? We started developing this product a very long time ago. Mm. And back then, because it takes a long time to, to get the electronics platform right, mm -hmm. uh, and it hasn't helped with the global component uh, problems that everybody's sure. suffering and when we started development hdmi arc wasn't a huge um segment in the marketplace and it was a nice to have not a need to have mm. and removing the nice to have allows us then to spend money somewhere else mm -hmm. And that's why it's not there, basically. Fair enough. I mean, it's just, I know that, well, I guess people should know there's also a Toslink input. So if you want to connect it to your TV, you can do it that way. Obviously, you don't get the benefit of remote control values mm -hmm. being passed, the speaker and vice versa. But I mean, it's just, I'm asking it because it's become a bigger thing in my life since I bought a fancy, fancy pants TV. Mm -hmm. um, and I realize it's not a thing for everybody. I, I do yeah. understand that. But I just... I thought I'd ask you because I know people will ask me, hey, John, why doesn't it have HDMI? So yeah, yeah. This is me I mean, asking. <laughs> yeah, and there are, uh, you know, there are other options from TVs. Um, quite a few TVs these days have Weezer built in, so you can stream from your TV to the loudspeaker using Weezer. So can we, yeah, let's talk about that for a moment because this is yep. something that I think is relatively new in the hi-fi world, at least in the last three years. So Weezer is a, a, a Wi-Fi, no, sorry, a wireless st transmission standard. Yes. Um, I first encountered it personally in, in Bookart speakers. So you have like a streaming hub, which has all your inputs on it, right? And that sits on your kind of, on your sort of sideboard or your bench. Mm -hmm. And then it streams left and right channels to each speaker wirelessly, and they have their own radio receivers in each. Yes. Now, you're using Weezer in the Focus 30 Um in what I, th I think I've got this correct, do you call it like open Weezer? Yeah, there's there's two different Weezers in mm. the in the Focus. So the speak the inter speaker connection is is run on one Weezer module mm. uh, and channel, and then in both speakers there's another Weezer module, um, which allows them to be uh, connected to any Weezer device, which is the open Weezer that you talk about. Right. So basically, I think it's LG TVs that have Weezer at the moment. Yes. So if, you, if you've got a sort of a modern LG TV, you could use that as a streaming device to stream wirelessly to left and right Dyne Audio Focus speakers, right? Yes, directly. Yeah. Yeah. Whereas if you're just, and we'll come to the streaming component in a minute, but if you're just streaming, let's say, I don't know, Rune or Spotify Connect or whatever, into essentially what is the primary loudspeaker, it then hands off the left-hand channel to the left-hand loudspeaker using, I guess you would call it closed Weezer. Yes. And there are there are coming more and more available um, HDMI arc to Weezer transmitters. So you can get those that you plug in behind your TV and 
and you can connect to the speakers that way as well. It's funny. Somebody told me about that last week. They're like, John, like you can just get uh, basically connect your, because I got a Samsung frame mm-hmm. and you can, it doesn't have Wisa. So you can yeah. connect it, take the HDMI out of the TV and into a, basically into a Wisa streamer, right? Yes. So it converts the signal and then streams it out to the loudspeakers, which I, blew my mind. I thought, oh, this is fantastic. I mean, mm-hmm. I've not tried it. I, I don't think they're very, uh, they're not crazy cheap, these these devices, but um, they are out there. So even if your TV doesn't have Wii, so you can add on one of these, right? Yes. And then you don't need to find a huge, long HDMI cable to plug from your TV to your speaker either. Right. Yeah, this is another advantage. So let's talk about streaming, mm-hmm. because I, I'm going to guess... I, when I say guess, I'm almost certain on this one. You're using a board from Stream Unlimited inside yes. the primary loudspeaker, and it does Rune Ready, it does Google Chromecast, Apple AirPlay 2, Spotify Connect. Have I missed one? Tidal Connect. Tidal Connect. I always miss Tidal Connect. <laughs> <laughs> and does it do Bluetooth? Because I, 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 I never yes, use it. it there's a Bluetooth, Bluetooth. as okay. well, yeah. So you've pretty much covered almost every base that needs to be covered mm-hmm. right yeah, and we tried to right i mean i think it's fantastic but i but i guess this would come not just from your engineering smarts but from stream unlimited's engineering smarts right because they probably built a board that does these things for you right and then you can customize it yeah but basically uh, stream unlimited have a few different modules and then you choose uh, what to integrate uh, right and what and depending on what you want to integrate you need to choose different modules gotcha but you also have something that the competition doesn't have at least yet anyway so and I'd, i you'll have to tell me if this runs on the same stream unlimited streaming board but you've got dirac live room correction yes that's an option within the stream module okay so that was one of those options so it does run on the streaming board yes i see okay now is is I've got to ask you this because I'm actually not up to date with this. And I know that when I first spoke to Jan, who represents you in Germany, when mm-hmm. I spoke to him in Munich, he was like, we've got Rune ready, but it's not certified yet. And I can stream to uncertified devices, mm-hmm. but I don't know whether it is certified yet with Rune ready. Is it or not? It's in progress. Right. Okay. So not yes. quite there, but it'll get there, I'm sure. Yeah. But, it, the, the speakers are with Rune and we are in a uh, dialogue with them about right. the, the certification. I mean, I'm using it and I have absolutely no issues whatsoever. Mm-hmm. But that doesn't mean this, <laughs> the certification is done, obviously. It's just that it's, you know, I, I realize there are lots of sort of small outlier use cases that need to be sort of crossed off. And it's probably a, a very long road for you to travel down to kind of yes. cover all these off, especially in a product like this, right? where everything's in the speaker and you've got all the streaming in the speaker. And basically, there's no outboard electronics. It's just two speakers that talk to each other wirelessly using, as we said, close WESA. Mm-hmm. And you just plug. This is where people kind of, kind of get a bit weird for me. Is they, they go, well, it's not a wireless speaker, John, because you have to plug in power cables. I'm like, <laughs> oh, God, really? Really? Are we there? So anyway, <laughs> you have to have a power cable into the back of each, but you, you don't have to use the analog input. You don't have to use the, t- the TOSLINK. Or the coax. I use the coax for my CD player because mm-hmm. I do have an old school element to my interests. Even though streaming active loudspeakers are definitely you know my sort of jam these days. I love them. And there's still value to the the CD player and the CD collection that you've got because what I've noticed personally, and this is is that the streaming services don't have that version that I've got on the CD. Right. Um, and so, I, I yes. was really disappointed the other day. I was like, oh. Uh, 
oh, just oh, it was a Beth Orton, an old Beth Orton track. Uh-huh. And I was like, oh, I'll just go and flick into Tidal and press play on that. And I just sat down and was like, this isn't how I remember at all. Mm. And then I, rem- I remembered that I'd got the CD somewhere. So then, you know, go and dig out the CD. And I actually ended up ripping it onto the Mac and then playing it from the Mac. And then it was just like, ah, there we go. That's that's how I remember it. And I hadn't listened to that CD for, I don't know, maybe 10 years or something. But the track that was available on the streaming service was not the one that was uh, released on the single. Is that because it had been remastered and then, then the streaming service had just dropped the original master? I, I guess so. Yeah, that happens yeah, all I, the time. All yeah. the time. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm big on this, but I realise it's a kind of, it's, it's a relatively marginal use case. And I realise... Well, I, I call it an old man problem, you know, because <laughs> I just I just do. But I've been quite talking of old man problems, right? I've been quite <laughs> bullish about streaming active loudspeakers on my YouTube channel, especially in the last few weeks. And I'm seeing quite a bit of pushback, and it's it's it seems to be well on the face of it, it seems to be legitimate, right? So the first complaint is what happens, Stephen, if the the amplifier module breaks or dies inside the loudspeaker. Uh, obviously, we have a, a warranty uh, obligation, mm-hmm. um, and if you're buying it in Europe as well, we also have the all the legal obligations that come with uh, selling products in Europe to do with uh, repairing uh, and the right to repair. Mm-hmm. And and like we touched on a little bit before about the difference between pro and and and, and hi-fi, we still engineer our products to last a long time, mm. um, and that's a big part of the calculations that we do when we when we choose specific components like capacitors, because they all have a lifetime and that mm. depends on how hot they are and how much they're used and, and so on and so forth. So we, we actually have to calculate all that in, into the product lifespan. Mm. And obviously our normal policy is uh, to provide spares for uh, at least 10 years beyond the, um, the, end, the life, end of life of the product as well. So if even if you picked up a pair of these 15 years from now, you should still be able to get spares to have them repaired? I would hope so. <laughs> right. I can't speak for what future management decisions will be, but right now, that's the way we do things, yes. But it would be at least 10 because of the EU legislation yes. and the right to repair, right? So even if yes. you discontinued them, discontinue them tomorrow, you have to supply... All the necessary spare parts for 10 years, right? Yes. Right. I, I don't know what it's like elsewhere in the world. You're right. It is like that in Europe, which I think mm-hmm. is a very cool thing. Yes. And that's actually one of the reasons, you know, like we were talking about the choice of components, one of the reasons for choosing the Pascal amplifiers, not least we think they sound amazing, is the fact that they, they're actually the biggest pro amplifier manufacturer that you've never heard of. Mm-hmm. Their products are built to go into PA speakers that go on tour. So they are extremely durable, extremely reliable, and have a very, very low failure rate. Mm. That's one of the big reasons for us to, to, to partner with Pascal in our products. Um, and that started in our pro products, and then we've, we've filtered that down into our hi-fi products. Do the DACs, the DA converters, mm-hmm. sit on the Pascal board as well? No, they sit on the motherboard. Okay. Are you allowed to say what they are? Uh, there are analog devices. I can't remember the number. Right. I guess they become, I mean, well, maybe, no, maybe I should ask this as a question. Do, if you're implementing driver optimization, 
crossover optimization in the, in the di digital domain. Mm -hmm. In your experience, does the sort of the nature of the, the DA converter and the AMP become slightly less important than if you were doing it in the analog domain? Not at all. Right. Not at all. We, we, we spend just as much care on choosing the DAC or the A to D or the amplifier or the, the filters that are associated uh, with those in the analog domain, because you still got to get from, uh, have buffer filters and, and, and things. We spend just as much time and care and attention on those as we do every other part of the loudspeaker. Right, right. And that includes objective measurements and many, many sessions in the listening room. <laughs> Well, that's, I mean, I guess you, I wasn't going to bring this up, but you, being, being as you've touched on it, heck, I'll go there, right? So yeah. you talk about, um, well, I won't, I won't nitpick about the word objective, given that you have to sort of interpret them, but whatever. So how much of product design is done, say, in a measurement lab, and how much of it is, is, is it done in, in a, say, a listening room? We probably spend, in terms of acoustic development, uh, we probably spend 20 to 30% of the time uh, measuring in Jupiter. Mm -hmm. Can you explain to us what Jupiter is? Because not everyone will know. Yes. Um, Jupiter is our measurement room. Uh, mm -hmm. It's 13 meters cubed in every direction. So right. 13 by 13 by 13. Uh-huh. Not 13 cubic meters. <laughs> <laughs> we both small, yes. Yes. And we measure the loudspeaker at a three-meter distance uh, mm -hmm. in the center of the room. Uh, we have uh, an arc of microphones, uh, 31 microphones on the arc, and we measure. We can measure the loudspeaker in a six-degree angular resolution in every direction. Uh -huh. And we also measure bass performance um, in a different way, in, but also in Jupiter. And when we combine those, those two measurements, we can measure from about 15 hertz up to the Nyquist of the sampling frequency that we use. And mm -hmm. we, can, we can run at 192 sample rate. Mm -hmm. And if, I mean, you say there's 30% of sort of development time spent on measuring the speaker. Mm -hmm. So what, what does the, what takes up the other 70%? There's, uh, yeah, probably 10% discussion. And the rest of it is uh, pretty much subjective uh, evaluation in the listening room. Interesting. So at least, yeah. say, 60% or thereabouts, you know, or let's say half your time is spent listening to the product or listen to a variation. Discuss yeah, more, definitely more than half the time, yeah. Right. That's fascinating. So even though the measurements are really important, they're not the be-all and end-all for you because… Absolutely well, not. Absolutely not. Um, measurements are great, and we, we love measurements. And what I would say is measurements are a great way to get a good loudspeaker. Hmm. But the way you get a great loudspeaker is you listen to it. Right. So I guess that begs the question, are there audible qualities that you cannot discern from your microphones and measurements in the Jupiter Lab? Yes. Um, so things that are kind of generally obvious from measurements are things like Tombra mm -hmm. um, and, and SPL. So those are very easy things to look at. And directivity is included in all of those kind of measurements. Mm -hmm. One of the things that's um, that's interesting, because there's quite a lot of debate with the new Clipple analyzer that, mm. about directivity and stuff and looking at the, the, the research papers that other manufacturers put out, 
yes, directivity has a huge amount to play, but what we found is it's not just the directivity, it's the uh, total power response of the loudspeaker. Hmm. And uh, when you put a loudspeaker in a, in a room, another side to it is um, the, the on-axis response is, is less important in some ways hmm. than the power response of the loudspeaker. Huh. Uh, there's a thing called a room radius, hmm. uh, and that is the boundary, imaginary boundary, between where the on-axis response is dominant and the power response is dominant. And in most rooms, it depends on how big your room is, mm. <laughs> most rooms that's between half a meter and a meter away from the loudspeaker. Okay. So in most rooms, uh, and the smaller the room, the closer it is to the, the speaker. In most rooms, the power response is the dominant thing that you hear. Now, on axis, you know, you, you hear the on axis response first, and then mm. your brain starts to process that. And that's how where you that's where we pick up localization uh, and so on and so forth. It's called the Hass effect or the precedence effect. Okay. So you hear the direct sound first, and that's what gives you your localization cues. And then the rest of that energy, if it re- arrives within about fifty milliseconds, reinforces that image perception of the sound in your head. Mm-hmm. So the on axis is still important. It is. But also the power response is, is hugely important and not and quite often not given as, uh, as much consideration. And then horizontal directivity, uh, if you have too big a variation in the horizontal directivity, uh, that includes wall reflections and things, then that can also skew your, your image perception. Hmm. Um, but it, se- it seems apparently we're very tolerant of, of vertical uh, anomalies. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's mainly because we walk around on the floor and depending on uh, where we are, that floor bounce is different. And yet you don't perceive that difference so much. Interesting. Can I ask you another question that came up in a previous podcast, actually, mm-hmm. about what you what you can measure on a loudspeaker? Mm-hmm. Now, there's a loudspeaker engineer here, um, Klaus Heinz, who runs Head, head yes. Loudspeakers. You, you probably know him, I don't know. But um, he was telling me, well, a couple of years ago and very recently, that he, he's big into dynamics and the mm-hmm. sort of the dynamic response of loudspeakers. That's the the way the speaker responds the, or puts contrast between audible contrast between quiet sounds and loud sounds, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and he was saying that he can't measure that. He doesn't know of a way to measure that. I mean, is is that does that jive with your experience? Yeah, I think one of the I might not use it, put it in in the same way he does, but one of the things that we look at is the 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 time response of the loudspeaker or Mm. um, the impulse response. And there's a lot of uh, unknown factors in this right Mm. now, especially as uh, a few years ago, people started to investigate the the mechanism of how we actually perceive sound. So for many, many years, the, the dominant theory of how we perceive sound has revolved around different areas of the basilar membrane. So that's the... The, the, the part of your ear that sits inside the cochlea. Mm-hmm. And this, this membrane gets excited by audio and vibrates. And the dominant theory is that 
different parts of the membrane are activated by different frequencies. And that's how we hear, that's how we perceive sound is, is mm. these different things. And a few years back, new research started to look at, it's not necessarily just that frequent, these frequency areas being activated, but also how sound travels along the bas basilar membrane from, from the front to the back of the membrane. Because mm. uh, basically sound hits the front and then travels along. And then that gives a time response along the, the membrane as well as the frequency response. And it would appear that we are maybe more responsive to time de dependent signals than we are frequency dependent signals. Mm -hmm. uh, and that goes back to our evolutionary track, if you like. So mm -hmm. if I, I'm going to click, if you hear a click in the forest when you're walking around, you localize that very, very quickly because a twig breaking is a potential attack right and it's that impulse response that that gives us much more accurate localization cues than if it was a pure tone like a, a whistle in the same location oh i see okay i think i mean this is if you'll forgive me for saying so yeah. but this is uh very similar to the way that bob stewart introduced mqa mm -hmm. in terms of localization of sound and and i think he talked about pre-ringing as well i'm i'm painting broad brush strokes here. Yeah. I realize that even my mentioning this in this podcast is going to have some of my listeners thumping the table already. But, mm -hmm. you know, I just thought there was a, there was a parallel there, so maybe he'd picked up on that research as well. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah, so that, that also translates into how the loudspeaker dynamically reproduces that sound. Um, and, and that's definitely something that we, we focus on as well. I see, um, right. And, and all that's included in in things like group delay through the filters and so on. And that's one of the reasons why FIR filters tend not to be used in our products. Mm. And one of the, the nice things for me coming to Dynaudio is Dynaudio has been very much focused on first order filters. Yes. And one of the advantages of the first order filter is that it has a lower group delay because it's, it's a, as low an order as you can go. Mm. Could you explain to, to, to listeners who might not know what, what the orders of a crossover might mean? Yeah, so the order of the crossover is the number of components that you use to make that crossover. Mm -hmm. So in a passive filter, it's, very, it's kind of very easy to generalize. Uh, you can roughly see what order the filter is by how many components there are. So... Mm -hmm. uh, a first order high pass filter would be a capacitor and you have the capacitor in series with the, the drive unit. Mm -hmm. A second order high pass, you have a, the capacitor in series and then an, an inductor in parallel with that driver. Mm -hmm. If you want to make it a third order high pass filter, you have a capacitor, inductor and another capacitor in a T-shaped filter huh. and so on and so on. And you just keep adding these components and the more components you add, the more orders you have. Right. It gets a bit different in the digital domain. Um, and then it, it's how you calculate that filter. Mm. So a lot of our filters in the digital domain are what we call second-order biquads. Mm -hmm. um, and the reason we use second-order biquads is that it gives you uh, the flexibility to change gain and cue and, and all the different things in the filter. Um, but in certain circumstances, for for example, the high pass on the tweeter in the focus, that is 
a first order digital filter. So again, it, it sounds to me like you're having to sort of perform the compromise dance again by balancing the the, the sort of flexibility that a crossover will give you against its simplicity. Exactly. And, and our balancing act is to try and do just enough, but not too much. Right. Okay. So enough to make the loudspeaker perform the way we want to, but not so much that it detracts from the subjective experience. So there are, sometimes there are filters that we can put in that will give us a better on-axis response. You know, so say we, we, we can flatten out some, some wiggles in the on-axis response. Mm. But when we go and listen to that, the effect of particularly the group delay of that filter on the transient response of the loudspeaker impacts the way the loudspeaker images in a stereo pair so we may or may not use that filter. So we might deliberately, sometimes deliberately choose to have a slightly poorer performing on-axis response because we found that that gives us a more natural image, a sound image when you're playing that ah, material. So again, it's, it's, it's a more, more compromises or more dis- tough decisions that have to be made, right? Yes, and, and that's why we spend so much time in the listening room, because it's very easy to go in, into Jupiter uh, and do the measurements and look at this and go, okay, we put this, you know, we, and, and you end up with, I don't know, I, yeah, for the sake of argument, you end up with 10 EQs, including mm. high pass and low pass filters. And then the art of what we do is deciding subjectively are those filters what we want to include in the loudspeaker. Gotcha. Can I bring it back to streaming just before yep. we before we wrap up? So, the, I mean, I mentioned one sort of pushback in terms of, I guess, amplifiers and repairability and things like that, and what happens if they fail. the The other pushback I tend to see with with streaming actives is, you know, the streaming world is moving so quickly that this thing will be out of date in three years or four years, right? Now, you'll forgive me for leading this, but this is something I've thought a lot about in, in literally the last three or four days. Mm-hmm. So, so we talk about the you know we, we mentioned the streaming board. You've got it from Stream Unlimited. It does Apple AirPlay, right? Which has been around for oh, 14, 15 years. Chromecast yes. for ten, Spotify Connect for ten, uh, Rune since twenty fifteen, so seven years. Tidal Connect is probably the only new one, which is two or three years old, right? Mm-hmm. So I don't understand why people say the streaming or the music streaming world or the audio system streaming world at home is forever changing because <laughs> the, the tech we're using now, AirPlay, Chromecast, Rune, uh, Spotify Connect, it seems to be the same we were using 10 years ago. Would you agree yeah, with that? I, I think I see both sides of that argument. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so... Apart from these like core services that you've just mentioned, mm. what has been the tendency in the loudspeaker industry in the recent past has been to develop their own kind of streaming technology. Yeah. And then they've not supported it themselves because they've hit a brick wall with their hardware or software development or whatever. Mm. And I've seen that a bit. And one of the reasons we've chosen to go with Stream Unlimited and use their module is that it's a piece of hardware. Yes, it's electronics, but it's a programmable piece of hardware. Mm. So 
when there are updates to streaming services, uh, Stream Unlimited builds their new uh, SDK, which then uh, incorporates the changes to the streaming services or the new streaming services, which mm. then automatically get incorporated into our products. And the other reason for choosing Stream Unlimited is one, they've been around for a while now, mm. and they generally stick to the same form factor. So what's more likely is that the stream hardware will get outdated before the rest of the hardware in the loudspeaker. But we should be able to take that stream module out and put a new stream module in. Mm. And and then you get back to the the same functionality just with the new the new streaming services. I guess the point I was trying to make is that with it, let's say with AirPlay, I mean I can stream AirPlay to your Focus 30 and it works beautifully. And mm-hmm. I can stream AirPlay to, let's say, an Auralic Aries Mini, which is a streamer that came out in 2014 or 15. So it's eight or nine years mm-hmm. old. And they work mm-hmm. the same for me. And it's the same with Rune. It's the same with Spotify Connect. I'm just not seeing the rapid change that kind of gets spoken about. I, I take your point about manufacturers developing their own systems and then letting them fall by the wayside because it's too much of them, probably a money black hole, I would think, financial black yes. hole. But Apple would be stupid to update AirPlay in such a way that it kind of annexes a third or a half of its users because they're still stuck on AirPlay 1 hardware. They usually make it backwards compatible, as they did with with, uh, AirPlay 2. It's backwards compatible with AirPlay 1. Um, Mm -hmm. I'm just not seeing the... I mean, Chromecast has worked effectively the same way since it was invented, right? So I I don't think you'd ever... Well, I guess I, I would be amazed if in 10 years' time you were forced by a user base or user requests to replace the streaming board in these Focus 30s because I just don't see those core services being updated to a point that renders the old one redundant. Yeah, I think that's people's fear. And I, I completely agree with you that the the, the major players like uh, Google and Apple, yep. you know, they are very, very conscious of alienating their customers. So... There's, there's always this backwards compatibility. Yep. And I don't see that changing because... No, I don't either. No, not at all. <laughs> that would be a PR nightmare for them. I think the same as Spotify Connect as well, the biggest mm-hmm. streaming service on the planet. They're not going to just mess with Spotify Connect to an extent that it, it, yeah, it sort of cuts off a major chunk of their user base. I mean, we saw what happens when this does happen, when Sonos cleave their range into two a few years ago with s1 and s2 and there was <laughs> i think this is where this fear comes from actually but i don't <laughs> see it as being applicable to the the big players like google apple and then also to to rune and spotify you know and completely and that's kind of my point you know sonos they developed their own thing mm. uh yeah you know, it was yeah. it was their streaming standard that they mm. developed and they were at the forefront of streaming services, so there wasn't anything else to, to do when they started doing their streaming services. But to maintain that and keep up with Spotify and AirPlay and Tidal and Rune, you know, that, that's a big, big ask when you've got these huge tech giants doing that. Mm. And so long as we keep up with those big players, which is what we've tried to do with choosing the partners that we've chosen, I don't think there's ever going to be an issue with the with these streaming services just stopping all of a sudden. I agree with you. I don't think they will eat at all. I think you're pretty safe with the the, uh, the big players that you've got on that stream unlimited board. 
mm-hmm. um, just essentially from looking back to the past and using that last 10 years to inform what's going to happen in the future. So, yeah. I'm aware, Stephen, that you have another meeting in literally three minutes. So let's wrap <laughs> it up here. I'd love to say, well, I will say, thank you very much for your time. That was a most illuminating conversation. You're very welcome. It's been a pleasure to talk to you. You have been listening to me, John Darko, and Dyn Audio's Stephen Entwistle. This episode was produced by Nick McCorriston, and music came from Ben Pitt.